Welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners, the Auckland Faculty. I'm Dr. Louise Kugler, and today I welcome Dr. Kate Grundy to the podcast to discuss Assisted Dying and the End of Life Choice Act 2019, what we need to know for primary care. Kate is a palliative care physician working at Christchurch District Health Board. She's the Clinical Director of Palliative Care, the Chair of the Clinical Ethics Advisory Group, a Senior Lecturer at Christchurch School of Medicine, and a Committee Member of the Mortality Review Committee. Welcome to the podcast, Kate. Kia ora. Thanks for the invite. So Kate, the End of Life Choice Act 2019 gives people who experience unbearable suffering from a terminal illness the option of legally asking for medical assistance to end their life through the process of assisted dying. I wonder if you can start by just telling us what that means. What does assisted dying mean? Yes, assisted dying is an umbrella term, as it were, to cover both euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide, which are terms that have been around for a long time. Euthanasia is essentially where usually a doctor, but somebody would be administering a medication either intravenously, but there is also the option in the New Zealand Act for administering via a tube, a nasogastric tube presumably, a medication that would uh, lead to the death of the person. Physician-assisted suicide is where a medication is prescribed and dispensed and given to the person who then ingests it themselves, either by swallowing it or by triggering its ingestion or intravenous administration, which is, again, in the New Zealand Act. So essentially, the processes by which countries um, legalise euthanasia or physician-assisted suicide are called different things in different countries. And uh, the term that's been used in the Act in New Zealand is assisted dying. Thank you for that, Kate. So who is eligible for assisted dying in New Zealand? The criteria are pretty clearly laid out in the legislation and the person must meet all of the criteria. So it's it starts with an age um, limit. Um, so it's limited to people aged 18 and over. And the person needs to be a citizen or permanent resident of New Zealand. So the person can't visit New Zealand for the purposes of assisted dying. They also need to suffer from a terminal illness that is likely to end the person's life in six months. So that means that chronic conditions or disability or psychiatric conditions alone would not allow someone to access assisted dying so that the person actually has to have a, an illness that is considered terminal. The problem is, of course, you know, some people would say that life's a terminal illness. Um, and of course, we're all uh, destined to die at some point. But I think that given the other criteria, and the next one being that the person is in an advanced state of irreversible decline in physical capability, when they're seen together, they give you a kind of a picture of someone who has a diagnosis of a condition that's progressive and that they're already in an advanced state of physical decline, kind of gives you an idea of the type of people that they're envisaging 
accessing assisted dying. The six-month prognosis is problematic, mainly because we're not very good at estimating prognosis. And I think it's a source of great concern to a lot of doctors and nurse practitioners as to how how much they're going to be asked to pin down a, a prognosis, particularly when it's a reasonable length of time away. Six months is quite hard. We're not too bad at estimating prognosis when time is very short, days to a few weeks. But there are so many treatments now that are available that can change people from being, um, you know, looking and feeling and uh, very unwell and having a deteriorating condition to someone who is actually starting to pick up and recover, whether that's cancer or illnesses like heart failure. You know, treatments these days can be spectacularly effective at um, retrieving people from a, a deteriorating trajectory to someone who's actually uh, feeling a lot better and actually improving. So it does make that prognosis part particularly challenging. But I think when you kind of put it together with the other with the other criteria, maybe in reality it might be less difficult, but I think that will be borne out as the act starts to be, as the law starts to be used. So we have an age, we have a, a residency criteria, terminal illness, which is linked with this prognosis element, the irreversible decline in physical capability, and then a deeply personal subjective part, which is the unbearable suffering criteria. So the person has to be experiencing unbearable suffering that cannot be relieved in a manner that the person considers tolerable. So it may be that a, a treatment exists that we believe as health professionals would actually help the person to feel better and maybe for their illness to be uh, improved. But it's up to the person whether they believe that that treatment is tolerable to them. So an example would be kidney dialysis, for example. So the person, we may say, well, actually, if we popped you on, uh, if it's as simple as that, popped you on dialysis, we would be able to extend your life. But if the person says, well, actually, to me, dialysis would not be something that I would find tolerable, it's not something that I want, then that's their, it's their call. So it's not our judgment, it's theirs. So that's very much subjective, but it does require a conversation with the patient to establish whether they are actually currently experiencing unbearable suffering. If they think they're going to at some point suffer, have unbearable suffering in the future, but they're not at the moment, then they wouldn't qualify. So it needs to be at the moment. That's how I interpret it. And then the final criteria is that the person has to be competent to make an informed decision about assisted dying. And competence is something that we encounter all the time in clinical medicine. And the person has to therefore understand what the treatment entails, that it's obviously it's permanent. They have to understand the consequences. They have to be able to have, uh, have a conversation, retain information about it. So the training that health practitioners undertake in order to be able to offer this as a service and then be reimbursed for their time 
includes some really clear guidance about how health professionals, um, that's medical practitioners or nurse practitioners, would go about assessing competence. The criteria don't mention coercion uh, per se, but that is clearly part as well of the assessment process. So we might come back and talk about uh, coercion later, perhaps. So it's quite complicated, it sounds, and informed consent feels like it should be a very big part of this process. I wonder Mm -hmm. if you can tell me what's involved in gaining consent. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I need to state right at the outset is that you, you know, you quite rightly pointed out that I'm a palliative care physician and I, until the law was passed, I spent many, many hours thinking and talking and presenting about the reservations that I have about assisted dying within our health system. And the fact that my personal belief is that it's not a, um, uh, uh, it, it, it's it's not something that should be part of the health health system. Um, so I've now had to completely kind of reframe my thinking because uh, the people of New Zealand decided that this law was something that we wanted. Um, so now I'm turning my attention to support and educate and make sure that the law is uh, implemented in the safest way possible for everybody. Um, But I will not provide it as a service. And most people I know working in palliative care feel similarly to me. And most hospices, not all, but most hospices won't be providing assisted dying as a service. So um, I'm... I'm not really in a position particularly to talk about how one assesses competence for assisted dying specifically, but obviously when we're dealing with very sick people in palliative care and people have times when they are um, they have delirium and confusion and reduced consciousness where they are not competent. You know, we do a lot of that ongoing competence assessments. But what we also do is we try to make sure that people can contribute and can be involved in decision making to the maximum extent possible. So we assume people are competent until it's clearly evident that they're not. And we also want to make sure that we establish as much as possible what that person would have wanted if they had been able to speak for themselves. So if they are delirious or they are um, unconscious, then it's not what the family want for them, but what they would want for themselves is that they were able to speak for themselves. But competence in, in this situation, I think is going to be really hard because potentially these are very sick people that potentially are changing quite a lot. And we go back to talking about this is a person in advanced state of irreversible decline in physical capability. And often with that comes mental um, reductions in mental capability as well. So I think it's going to be a very important part of the process and something that potentially will fluctuate. And I know that patients and families will worry that a delay 
any delay in gaining agreement around eligibility criteria through the the process that's outlined in the law, any delay in that may lead them to deteriorate to a point where they are not competent because you have to be competent at the very first assessment by the attending medical practitioner, the AMP. You have to be competent at the time you're assessed by the independent medical practitioner, the IMP. If an independent nurse practitioner becomes involved at any point, you'd have to be competent then. And you'd have to be competent at the time that the medication is dispensed and delivered. So all the way through that process. If there is any doubt from the AMP or the IMP that the person is competent, then a second opinion can be gained by a psychiatrist. So obviously a psychiatrist in a sense holds the casting vote there. So if there is an uncertainty, then uh, a psychiatrist would need to be involved. I'm kind of outlining some of the ways in which we might think about whether this is a service that we as individual GPs, obviously talking to GPs, want to participate in this now or sometime in the future. And also think of some of the ways in which we might prepare ourselves to be having some of these conversations. And it's it's really about using those really good basic clinical skills to assess the person's illness state status to provide them with the support that they need with their unbearable suffering and to assess their degree of competence and to navigate all the other complexities that come along with that as well. So Kate, I appreciate um, you've mentioned that you have decided to opt out, but what are our obligations to our patients should we decide that we are opting out? Yes, you can opt out on two grounds. One is that you hold a conscientious objection that doesn't need to be because of, of religious, you know, people think of it sometimes as a religious thing, but it doesn't have to be that. It can be any personal view um, that this is not uh, something that you agree with. And the law requires you to state that you have a conscientious objection to the patient. And in doing that, you also are required to give them the information so that they can access the service through, the, in a sense, the official channel through the Ministry of Health. And there is an, a centralised assisted dying service through the um, entity called SCENS. There's an 0800 number, there's a website, and people can be directed to that and then can access information and the service if they wish through that. Through the the work that the ministry did, the ministry did quite a lot of co-design work with the members of the public as they were putting together the information sheets for, for the public, of which there are a good number and they're all on the website uh, for various parts of the, of the process. There's also a lot of information for health professionals as well on the website. And through the co-design process, the public made it quite clear that if people held a very strong conscientious objection, they didn't want to enter into a a long and involved conversation with that person. They felt that that probably wasn't the right person to have that conversation with. 
But my sense would be that if you do hold a conscientious objection, you still need to be respectful and supportive and make sure that the other things that you can and should do as far as caring for that person with regard to their symptoms or any other needs that they have, particularly if you're going to be their ongoing GP, you need to still do that. Even if you don't, um, we, we don't want there to be a sense that the, that the person feels that they're being trying to be being talked out of it by, by their GP. So I think that individual GPs need to make their own personal decision as to whether they want to declare a conscientious objection or use the other option, which is that you haven't got the experience or training. And the ministry, I think, is quite keen. You don't have to be trained, I don't think, to do it. All medical practitioners are able to, you don't have to have been qualified for any length of time. You don't have to be in this particular specialty. You can provide the service. The law allows for that. But my understanding is that you can't access the uh, subsidy, so the payment, unless you're registered with the ministry. And in order for that, you have to have undertaken some degree of training so you understand how the system works. So that kind of makes a lot of sense to me that if you're going into this, it's something completely new. It's medications that we will have never used before. There's quite a process as far as filling out of the forms and the how you get the medications and the timelines that are around it. So there's a lot of information to learn. So a GP could say, actually, you know, I can understand why you might want this service, but it's not something that I have actually yet been trained to deliver. And in a sense, I'm not sure that it makes a whole lot of difference as far as because you still would do the same thing and provide a supportive, respectful environment. You still want to make sure that they get the best care possible for their medical condition, that their emotional needs and support needs are met or all of that, which are, you know, the cornerstone of good palliative care and good general practice. But I, I think that the the crux to me is that personal conviction, whether actually even having any conversation and potentially even being having an ongoing involvement with that patient. If you're a conscientious objector for some GPs, it might be just not possible. And I think that people shouldn't feel bad about that. I think it's better that they declare that and say, look, actually, I really struggle with assisted dying. I find it really hard. And I think that, you know, I'm happy to still be involved, but you need to know that this is how I feel. And you might find that you get better care from a different GP who is a bit of more of an open mind about assisted dying. And if you certainly feel like that, or you think you're going to be bringing bias into your conversations, or you're going to find yourself trying to talk the person out of it, then I think it's better to declare a conscientious objection and let the patient decide whether they want you to continue to be their GP. That makes perfect sense. Thank you, Kate. So thinking about the decisions then that your patient who we've deemed eligible has to make, what sorts of decisions do they have to make? The ministry is is, is um, suggesting that this could be a four to six week time that it takes to, to assess eligibility. Right at the end, when 
the registrar, who's a ministry-employed person, makes the determination that all the criteria have been met and the person is eligible. They're then required to allocate or to identify time and a, a location, I think, that fits with, the, with their attending medical practitioner, the AMP or their ANP, if they've, if they've decided to use a, an attending nurse practitioner. And so they need to determine a date. So that might be, you know, weeks time or two weeks time or a month's time. Now, when that time comes, they can decline that. They can say, no, actually, I don't want it to happen. You know, things have changed in my life. Or it may be that it can't happen because the person's now no, no longer competent. But as far as the patient's concerned, they have to identify a time and then the GP, if the GP is the attending medical practitioner or the SENS appointed doctor, and that's called a replacement AMP, replacement attending medical practitioner, will make sure that they have that day put aside in order to, um, to not be hurried. And the ministry is expecting that the majority of patients or people will want this to happen in their own home. So that will need to be assessed as to whether that's that's suitable. And then the the person themselves and their family, assuming they have their family involved, we hope that patients will have their family involved, but the law does not require that. So it's just a little aside just to mention. So we should, I think, be encouraging patients to talk it through with their family, but we can't make them do it. So that time needs to be kind of locked in. And I think that that's communicated through through to the ministry organization so that they can make sure that the scripts are written in time and that the medication is dispensed and there are a very small number of dispensing pharmacies in New Zealand um, we don't know where those are but they the ministry obviously knows where they are and knows what the medications are and those those medications come in a lockbox with all the instructions and they're so all of that is included in the training as to how you get the medications and then how you return the medications or any unused medications, either because the person changes their mind or because there's medications left over at the end of the procedure and then they're returned to the pharmacy. If the person does decide that, you know, that date, which is a week on Thursday or whatever, it's coming around and they actually don't want it to happen then, then they obviously need to let the person know it can be cancelled but then they need to come up with another date for it or they can decide that they're not going ahead with it that's my understanding but as I say I haven't gone through the training so this is stuff that I've picked up um, through um, being a very very um, interested um, observer of the way that the legislature of the last year as far as implementation has happened and it can be postponed for up to six months which is intriguing considering the person's meant to have a prognosis less than six months but um you know we all know that you know that um is a very inexact science so potentially the person can start the process have four to six weeks before eligibility is granted then they can have six months to make the first date and if they made it at some point towards the end of the six months, they could potentially delay it by a further six months. That's the most that it can be delayed, I think. But I would imagine that most people will be, I don't know. I actually don't know what, what most people will be doing. And 
you know, if people are really in a state of physical decline, you know, one would assume that they would be choosing a date that's reasonably near rather than a long way away. But uh, but I, I, I don't know and I, and I don't think it's possible to know yet. I think it's all going to be part of what what pans out as the um, as people start to use the service. Kate, I wonder if I can ask you about the role of the family or whanau in this process. Firstly, can a family person makes a decision that they would like assisted dying, can the family object? They can't object. Um, but I think it becomes extremely awkward for the health professionals involved if if that did happen. I mean, I suspect some people will choose to not go ahead with assisted dying because their family object. But some people people may, may feel so very strongly that they'll go ahead with even with objection from their family. And of course, it might may be only one member of the family who objects and that will be challenging for them and it will be challenging for the relationships and the dynamics within the Fano. So, and they're all things that obviously GPs will be aware of, either maybe looking after a family member. And maybe the family member is a patient of yours and their loved one is going through assisted dying. And so therefore, as a GP, you're supporting um, a friend or family member who's really struggling with the decision or or with with any aspect of what's going on. So, you know, there are lots of touch points where we might be involved. And equally, we may be involved with uh, grief afterwards. Um, but in the same way as we're involved with, we and GPs are involved with caring for people uh, with grief and loss. But it's just adds, I suppose, a different and a new dimension if it's an assisted death rather than a normal death. I think we just have to be aware that caring for Fano will be a very important part of um, the care we provide. Yeah. I wonder too how you see this process sitting with different cultural groups and if any equity issues may come and be yeah, before. Yeah. Um, the ministry have made a very they've they've really tried hard to involve Tangata Fenua to really understand the obligations under Teturiti. There's a strong cultural presence within the the legislation and within the implementation of the legislation. But I think it's really hard to know, and I think that Maria is conflicted, or as they have as widely varying views as, as as other cultures do. But I know the the difference, I suppose, in some of the in the indigenous cultures and the Pacific cultures is very much about the collective decision making rather than the individual decision making. This had always has always sat quite uncomfortably with me about the fact that this is this is very much a legislation rooted in individualism. And um, and in palliative care, we very much are involved with uh, the whole Fano, the whole community, and um, and supporting everyone. So it, it's yeah, there are some things that that I think are going to be challenging going forward. Talking about Fano, I'm just coming, just going to come back to the the issue of what happens when people go through the process and are actually deemed ineligible. And I think that some people are going to be disappointed because they, they may have thought that the law would apply to them and it doesn't. And I know there are a lot of people 
who um, believe that they can request assisted dying for a future time when they lose competence related to dementia. I know that some families will feel that it's wrong that a family member can't access something that they want because they've that they're actually no longer eligible. So I think all of those things will be, again, very much part of a GP role is to be conscious of, of how we care for patients and, and families when the law is actually not available to them. I mean, that's another thing that I, found, I have always found quite challenging about any assisted dying law is that before this law came into, into being, nobody could access assisted dying, but now a select few can, but a whole bunch of people still can't. So you talk about equity, and I also think that equity comes into this from the perspective of health literacy, because I think it takes quite a lot of knowledge to understand what your rights are and what the opportunities are for getting good end of life care and if there's been a very pervasive narrative which is dying is universally terrible and we just know that that's not true um so people think that their death is going to be painful it's going to be awful they're not going to be supported because they've never heard of palliative care they don't know that gps provide palliative care that they can have excellent palliative care in a residential care facility and not everybody has to you know mortgage their house, sell their house or become poor in order to access residential care at the end of their lives. You know, there's a lot of, unsu- of, of, of ignorance, lack of knowledge about the services that are available. Um, and there's also a lack of equity as to access to specialist palliative care and after hours general practice and a whole bunch of other things that, that I wished we had sorted out before this came in. So, Kate, just before we wrap up this podcast, I wonder if you can talk to coercion. You did mention it before, and I just wonder if you can clarify Mm. for our listeners what you mean by this and what we need to be aware of. Coercion comes in in many ways, doesn't it? And people think of elder abuse and um, people being denied um, care that they're entitled to because families are not treating their vulnerable loved one well. But I think it it can be much more subtle than that. And suggestion comes in lots of ways. And people are very vulnerable at the end of life. And um, I think that sometimes people are worried that they're utilizing scarce resources, that they're burdening their families, that families are having to maybe not work or work a full-time job, but then come and care for them. And the cost of potentially going into into residential care weighs heavily on people's minds or people just don't want to go into residential care because they've heard things about residential care that maybe make them feel like they wouldn't be well cared for and it's I really also want to make a plug because I think that residential care in New Zealand tries very hard and very often provides excellent care at the end of life and is supported very strongly by hospice palliative care services across the country to do that. So people may feel obliged or feel, why am I um, burdening my family or my health professionals by still living and having a normal death when it could all be hurried up and I could save everybody a lot of problems. Um, So within the training, doctors are guided as to how they can assess that. And one of the questions I think we're um, encouraging 
the assisted dying uh, practitioners to do is to take the patient to one side alone away from their family and really find out from them whose idea it was to do this whether it's something that they uh, they have any personal reservations about and just gently probe their own personal feelings about that to, so that the doctor can be quite sure that this is something that the person wants and they're not doing it for the benefit of others so i really like the way that that they're encouraging that gentle um, inquiry, that curious inquiry to occur so that um, we can be sure that this is, is really what the person wants for themselves. Well, thank you for your insights today, Kate. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you once again. Just to conclude our podcast and take home messages for our listeners, please. I think that it's really important that you think about your own personal views and your own personal uh, position on this. And and to maybe practice about how you might tackle the very first time that you're asked about it so that you can you can hear some of the words that you might use and and be prepared to possibly change your views over time you might be against it now and and for it as the law is becomes um embedded or it might be the other way around you might actually feel oh no I'm quite I'm quite for it now but actually as it happens you might start to change your views and actually feel somewhat different about that. And I know that internationally, many doctors signed up to provide assisted dying, but over time actually withdrew that service. Reflect and think and talk within your peer groups, you know, talk within your practice team about where you sit on this. The second thing is that if you're going to be a, a you know, GP who actually goes ahead and does it, definitely get all the training you can, be as well prepared as you possibly can to do it. Um, either way, read all the amazing uh, resources that are on the website and also familiarise yourself, if you're not already, with your local palliative care service because these patients need to be absolutely offered the very best end-of-life services that exist for all patients so that this is not an excuse, in a sense, to not provide full holistic services for uh, patients at the end of life it's not going to stop deaths from occurring sometimes people will think about assisted dying way too late way too late to go through the process so we have to be really on our game as far as providing top quality symptom management and and palliative care at the end of life so take up options opportunities for uh, education um, through um, anything that's online, through your local hospice services. Make friends with your local hospice services so that you know exactly what's available and, yeah, and sing out for help if you need it. Wonderful. Thank you, Kate. There is a list of resources, uh, including the training modules, on our website, goodfellowunit.org. Thanks for your time today and thanks for listening.